Amen. That's great. Thank you. Lovely to be here again. Lovely to see you. Uh, I'm carrying on looking at uh, various incidents from the Gospel of John. I've had the privilege of speaking over the last few months here. Uh, we looked a little bit at uh, Jesus washing the feet of the disciples and uh, the woman of Samaria. I, I realize I am jumping around uh, quite a bit in the gospel. Uh, last time I was with you, I was talking about Peter and perhaps his reflections on the John 21, that final chapter uh, when he's restored. Uh, but today I want to look at uh, one of the unique miracles that takes place in the Gospel of John. Uh, if you've got your Bible or you've got your iPad or your phone or whatever, if you can turn to John 11, that would be good because this is the, the miracle, the raising of Lazarus. And uh, we only read about this in the Gospel of John. It's one of several signs in John's Gospel. There's seven of them. And uh, the final one, the very final one, is Jesus' resurrection from the dead, um, which is a great sign as to who Jesus is, his power, what he has done. But this is the, the, the sixth out of seven signs. And uh, if, you, if you read the end of John's Gospel, you needn't turn to this, but I'll just read out a couple of verses where John's explaining why he has written this Gospel and uh, he says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So he's saying, I've written this. There's all these signs. I want you to believe. I want you to believe in Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the God's chosen one the Son of God, and that when you believe, that word belief crops up loads of times in John's Gospel, you can have life. So anyway, let me just go back to, uh, in fact, let me read the first few verses at the end of chapter 10. I'll explain why I'm doing that, just to fill in a bit of the background. So from chapter 10, verse 40, and then I'll read the first few verses of chapter 11. It said, then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. Here he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a miraculous sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. Now, a man named, Nic uh, named sorry, Lazarus uh, was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and, Lazarus, uh, and her sister, and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Okay, I'll just leave that there. So we begin this chapter, and it's talking about someone called Lazarus, who's in a place called Bethany. Now, one of the things that's interesting in John's gospel is that right at the very beginning, when Jesus is about to begin his uh, ministry, when he receives the Holy Spirit and when he's baptized by John, do you remember there's that incredible declaration from God, 
This is my son whom I love, my well-beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And the Holy Spirit comes and fills him. And Jesus begins his ministry, his public ministry of uh, preaching and teaching and doing miracles. Uh, and it's John that actually says, this is in a place called Bethany on the other side of the Jordan. The River Jordan runs from uh, the Sea of Galilee right the way through, the, really through the middle sort of of uh, Judea and Galilee and Samaria uh, and comes down to the Dead Sea. And on the other side, in other words, on the eastern side, the, the side furthest away from Jerusalem, this is where John had been baptizing. And uh, it's only John that mentions it was called Bethany. And we're not exactly too sure where that is. But that's where Jesus' public ministry begins. I find it interesting that Jesus' public ministry, as I said, with the teaching, with the doing miracles, before he, we come into that final week that we sometimes call Passion Week, where Jesus heads to the cross, uh, it's going to come to a, a, an end again in another place called Bethany. And it seems that you know, everything is sort of encapsulated in these chapters leading up to chapter 11. And Jesus comes along here, and um, he, uh, uh, well, he, he is going to go there because Bethany is a place that he has visited before. He's incredibly friendly. He, he loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. It actually says that uh, in verse 5. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. They clearly love him as well. Um, Mary is later going to pour ointment on Jesus, pour perfume on Jesus' feet. I think sometimes we read that and we think that's already happened, but it actually happens in the next chapter, in chapter 12. And this extravagant expression of love. And Jesus very much found a home there. You'll know there's a verse in the Bible that says, the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. He didn't own his own property but here was a place that he could go to for respite, for rest, this sense of love. And, uh, you know, I, I remember reading this during lockdown and thinking, what a great privilege it is for so many of us that we do have homes. Homes where we're comfortable, homes where we're warm. I know there's all sorts of problems with gas and electric bills and eating and things like that. But uh, for those of us who do have a home, really to give thanks to God for what he has given us and maybe ask ourselves you know are there ways in which we can use this to serve God but I also thought as, as well about those who do not have homes that are places of security places of safety and sadly you've seen the news and I've seen the news and uh, sadly during the lockdown some of these incredibly cruel and barbaric things that have happened to young children and I would just encourage you to pray you know, for vulnerable people, sometimes it's not children, sometimes it's wives, uh, you, know, you know, female partners. Sometimes it's actually men as well who get abused. And uh, really, we make this a point of prayer for people who, at the end of the day, they think, I've got to go back to that place, and I just do not feel safe. But this was a place, as I said, that it, it was a place, apparently, of safety and of love and of respite for Jesus. And yet, strangely enough, the word Bethany means house of affliction. Uh, it's so good. Thank you to all those who are leading the worship this morning. Quite a load of those choruses. I didn't know. They were all new to me. And it's good to discover new expressions, new ways to... Um, thank God for what he's done and to praise him. And uh, in one of it, it said, at the foot of Calvary, and it talked about uh, the ransom, the pardon, the redemption, I think was the word, the redemption for our affliction. 
And uh, that's just so strange that this place was also a place of affliction. And obviously, it was for Lazarus. Lazarus is ill. Lazarus is seriously, desperately ill. In fact, we know the end of the story, or well, not the actual total end, but we know what's going to happen next. That is so ill, he's going to die. Now, we're not told what his sickness is. I actually quite like the fact uh, of that, because I think sometimes in the Bible, when you read about lepers, you think, oh, nothing to do with me. You know, I haven't got leprosy. Here is someone who is just sick, seriously sick. And I just like the fact that we can look at this and think, oh, Jesus, I might be in that situation. Other people I know might be in that situation. And uh, so the sisters send word. And in verse 3, it says, the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Come quickly. No, actually, if you've got your Bible open in front of you, it doesn't say come quickly. It just says, Lord, the one you love is sick. And there's no request. And again, I find that a little bit strange. But then I do wonder if sometimes our prayers are like that. You know, sometimes we come to God and we say, God, you know the situation. Here is what I would like you to do. Could you do this for me, please? But I also find that sometimes there are times when I come before God, I just say, God, I honestly don't know what to pray. You know the situation that I'm in. You know the situation that we're in. We're just bringing it before you. We're telling you. Um, I love the books uh, the, the, of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If uh, you haven't read them, read them. I know they seem to be children's books, but they're brilliant books. Uh, my five-year-old daughter, uh, not daughter, five-year-old granddaughter. <laughs> uh, my five-year-old granddaughter is just starting uh, reading them, and that, that, that's, uh, that's just great. But there, I remember there's an episode in one of them, and someone says, you know, we need to let Aslan know. And uh, I think it's Lucy that says, uh, don't you think he already knows? And the other said, yes, but I think he likes us to tell him. I just think that's so good. Sometimes we've just got to come to God and just say, here we are, God. Um, And maybe, you know, sometimes it is a case of leaving it in his hands. And uh, Jesus hears about this and said, the sickness is not going to ultimately result in death it's for the glory of God and I'll say a little bit more about that but then strangely enough he doesn't do anything at first and in fact he waits there for two more days and uh, this this seems really strange why why wasn't God working straight away I'm just going to touch on some of the things and develop them a little bit more I mean, one of the things that I will say is that by the time Jesus gets there, Lazarus is dead. You know, there is no two ways about it. And uh, the miracle that is going to occur is going to be even better than a healing, right? Jesus had healed many, many, many folk. The number of resurrections was much lower. And Jesus is going to do a much more powerful um, uh, miracle through resurrection uh, as well. Um, One of the other things that I want to say as well is that Jesus is following God's agenda. If you read the Gospel of John carefully, several times Jesus says things like, my hour is not yet come. You know, you can't kill me yet, you you gang of people, you you want to see me die. My hour is not yet come. Even in the very first miracle, that very first sign that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, Uh, Remember, his mother says, they've run out of wine. And Jesus says, woman, or you can translate it, dear woman. It is a polite term. He said, my hour is not yet come. 
right? God has his own agenda. And you see, one of the difficulties that we're going to see in, uh, occurs, and what often occurs in our life, is when our timetable and God's timetable aren't the same. And someone's got to change. And you can guess who that someone is. And it isn't God. And this is going to create all sorts of difficulties. So Jesus waits, and eventually he says, right, we're going to go. But the disciples are thinking, this is actually a dangerous scenario to go into. This place, Bethany, as I said, it's just two miles from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital city. It is the head of the religious and the political Jewish forces who really do not like what is happening with Jesus. In fact, in the chapter before, they tried to stone Jesus. They tried to arrest Jesus. And the disciples are all saying, look, it's going to be jolly dangerous if you go back there. Until in the end, one of them speaks up. And someone says, we'll go. I'll go. Even if I have to die. I wonder if you know who that is. Read the story. It's Thomas. Thomas. Now, if I had said to you at the beginning of the service, what's the first thing that comes into your mind when you think of Thomas? I want to suggest the word doubt, doubter. How many of you are thinking that? Okay, loads of, loads of you. We think of Thomas as the doubter. And right yeah, at the end, he does doubt. Uh, like all the other disciples who fled from Jesus in the garden of uh, Gethsemane, he, you know, he has these massive doubts. And he says, you know, I want to actually see those wounds, see those scars, touch this uh, Jesus whom you say is risen. And he, he is full of doubt. But here in this moment, he shows incredible courage. You know, in the other Gospels, Jesus has said, if you want to follow me, you've got to take up your cross. You've got to deny yourself. <laughs> to take up your cross, people knew what it meant in those days. It meant it was the end of yourself. You know, that's the only reason you take up a cross is because you're going to die. And at this moment... Thomas says, I'll go, I'll die, and he encourages the other disciples. And it's just a plea as well that sometimes we know bad things about people and they dominate our thoughts. We're very aware of one another's weaknesses, but it's so good to be aware of other people's strengths. Just the other day I was meeting up with some ministers and they were talking about someone and uh, Someone said something about this, this person, and I'd never known it before. And I just thought, oh, so good to know that that person has got this ability, this uh, ministry, this uh, ability uh, to, to help other people, to try and focus on some of the good stuff. So Jesus goes down, and uh, there he is going to meet up with Mary and Martha. Now, I suspect that lots of you will know a little bit about Mary and Martha. We read more about her in Luke. And uh, Jesus had come to the house, and if you remember, uh, Martha was busy doing all the work, and Mary was just sitting at Jesus' feet. And Martha said, well, tell her to do something. And uh, Jesus said, actually, she, she's made the best decision because she was uh, enjoying the presence, the teaching of Jesus. So you've got Martha, who's very, very active and you've got Mary, who's much more contemplative, much more passive. And again, this comes out in this story. We find that Martha, she rushes to meet Jesus. Mary stays at home, and she waits to be summoned. And then Martha comes along, and uh, in verse 21, she says, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, 
my brother would not have died. And she's just stating it, but I wonder if that's infused with not only disappointment, but almost a bit of reproach. Why were you? Why didn't you do something? Why didn't you get here sooner so that Lazarus would still be alive? And as I said, what often happens in our life is that our timetables, our schedules, and God's schedules don't always meet. And I don't know about you, but I have probably wasted hours and hours of trying to tell God what my plans, what his plans for more my life should be. All right? You know, and it's so easy that our prayer degenerates into that. God, you know the problem? Sure, if I was God, this is how I'd fix it. This is what I would do for me. And sometimes it doesn't happen. And of course, this is the difficulty because then we get frustrated. Then we get annoyed. Then we think God's not listening to us. And then we think, well, why is God not? Is he not interested? Is he too busy? Are there other people that are more important? And then, if you're anything like me, you think, well, if God's not going to do something, I'll have to. What a disastrous idea. I mean, when you stop and think about it, the whole idea of prayer degenerating into the fact that here's Peter Davis telling you, the almighty God of the universe, who created things with just the word, this is the way to do things. No. Prayer is more about us discovering what God wants us to do and us fit it in with his timetable. And one of the things that's interesting is that as Martha spends time in the presence of Jesus, I think you can see her faith growing. Um, and, you know, Jesus is sort of taking her on this journey of uh, encouragement. Because in verses um, 22 to 24, you know, she says, you know, I do know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And uh, even though this might have been beyond a human comprehension, maybe she, she had the faith to believe that uh, Jesus would heal Lazarus, she begins to think, oh, you, God will give you whatever you ask. And what happens is Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And it's very interesting, her response. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So she believed in the resurrection. Can I just say, there were people around in Jesus' time didn't believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees, whole group of people, they served God with no hope of any future reward. Um, Jesus has some debates with them uh, and shows them that, you know, resurrection is, is taught in the Old Testament. There's not that many verses that uh, teach about it. A few in the Psalms, one in Daniel. Um, the one that we probably know is in Job, where Job says, I know in my flesh I will see God. Um, uh, uh, I, I mean, I've got the verse written out here. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh... I will see God. But nevertheless, Martha does believe in the resurrection and says, yes, I know he will, uh, he will be raised in the last day, at the last day. And I do wonder if sometimes in our prayers, we think, well, things haven't turned out how I'd like it to, but God is a God of eternity and it will all be okay in eternity. When we stand before God, when he judges people, when he sorts all that stuff out, it will all be okay. And uh, I think that's a common sort of response. But then Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. 
And you see, because we know the end of the story, what we find is that God is actually going to invade the here and now. And God is going to do something quite incredible. And I just want to encourage you and encourage me that sometimes perhaps we shouldn't just sort of think, okay, well, it'll all be all right in the end. The final day, the day of judgment, it'll all be sorted out. And dare to believe that God will intervene in history. Because Jesus comes along and he says, I am the resurrection. I am here right now. I was mentioning about there being seven signs in John's gospel. There's also seven I am sayings. Jesus says, you know, I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the, the, the true vine. And here he says, I am the resurrection and the life. That phrase, I am, actually, that was one of the reasons why the Jews tried to kill him. Because he, he made this state, statement before Abraham was, I am. And of course, the Jews all knew, what's the name of God? I am that I am. And actually, even that is interesting because when Moses encounters God, remember the burning bush? He goes to the burning bush and God starts to speak and he says, who shall I say is sending me? And God says, I am that I am. Tell him I am has sent you. And it's not just that God exists, but he exists to do something. He exists to be active. In fact, you know, when God spoke to Moses, most of what God had said before had been promises. When God had spoken to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, he made promises. You'll be a great nation. You'll get your own land. Well, by Moses' time, they had become a great nation, but they didn't have their own land. They were slaves. But God says, I'm going to do something, and I'm going to do it right now. I'm going to break in. And I wonder if we should, in our prayers, say, actually, God, forgive me that sometimes I haven't pursued things. I just thought, okay, I'll leave it to you, and it'll be okay at the end. But will you break in? Right here, right now, with your power, with your resurrection power, with your life as well. Jesus says, I am the life. I read that bit that John says, these things are written so that you might have life. And can I just say, it is not just life that starts when we die. But it's life that starts right here, right now. What does Jesus say in John 10 verse 30? I am come that you might have life more abundantly. Life in all its fullness. And that moment of believing in Jesus brings in a new dimension of life, brings in new possibilities. And just as God invaded Jesus in the person, uh, just as God invaded the earth in the person of Jesus 2,000 years ago, he has invaded the earth in, through the Holy Spirit that dwells in you, that dwells in me. And so the possibilities are really quite staggering. Uh, and, uh, you know, some, sometimes... Sometimes people refer to this as um, the land of the living. Some, I've read someone say, actually, it's the land of the dying. Because none of us are going to be around here forever, not in its present form anyway. But actually, when Jesus comes, he brings this new quality of life. Let me just read what one uh, uh, commentator wrote. He said, when we believe in Jesus, when we accept what he says about God and about life, and stake everything on it. In truth, we are resurrected, for we are freed from the fear that is characteristic of the godless life. We are freed from the frustration that is characteristic of the sin-ridden life. We are freed from the futility of the Christless life. Life becomes so rich that it cannot die, but must find in death only the transition to a higher life. We all know that verse, life in all its fullness. 
do we experience it though? Do we really experience it? And maybe again, that is something for us to pray. God, you know, may I enjoy, enjoy this abundant life? That doesn't mean that we're going to be super rich or super famous or anything else like that. But I have this deep assurance to know that God is with us, to know that God is with us every step of the way. And you see, what happens is that as Jesus starts saying this, all of a sudden, Martha, instead of sort of just dwelling on the fate of um, Lazarus, she begins to think about her own life, and if you like, her own future life uh, as well. And she comes out with this incredible statement, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. And her faith has risen from spending that time with Jesus, with Jesus that says, actually, the answer is in me. I am the resurrection. I am the life. I can break in right here, right now. Then there's Mary, as I said. Mary, who, I mean, she does have some things in common with uh, Martha. Uh, again, she basically says to Jesus, the first thing she says is, if you'd been here Lazarus, my brother, would not have died. But there are these significant differences. She is much more passive, much more contemplative. And yet Jesus, the great thing about Jesus is he knows what sort of people we are. He has made us into those sort of people. He has given us our personalities. He wants to transform them in some ways. But he uses the active and he uses the passive and he knows how to address people. Uh, so with Martha, this very active person, you know, she's there, lots, lots of questions. She's got this faith in the resurrection, and Jesus builds up her faith, and she realizes who Jesus is. What happens with Mary? She just comes, and she cries, and she kneels down in a sort of appeal to Jesus, in humility, in brokenness. And how does Jesus respond to her? What's the shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept. Mary is weeping and Jesus is weeping. Mary is weeping and God has given us our emotions. There's nothing wrong with weeping. And sometimes we cannot find the words. And, uh, you know, I do not believe that God wants us to be stoical, even, you know, that stiff upper lip sort of approach. But sometimes to have that brokenness before him. And, uh, you know, can I just say, you know, God knows how we are going to respond. And God's not surprised. Have any of you ever been surprised that your children have had tantrums? Or your grandchildren have had tantrums? I'm not surprised. Like they do have them. I don't like them, right? And you try and talk them out of it and cajole them and say, we're not having that. So there's no need to be doing that. And actually, you need to go and say sorry. And, and you're there to try and restore. But I'm not shocked. I'm not suddenly thinking, oh, my grandchildren are not perfect. Despite me and my wife as their parent, grandparents. And you, you, know, you just know. And God isn't surprised when sometimes we fail. He knows. I'm not excusing that. But please don't think, you know, God's sort of, well, that's it. You know, I've finished with you. Uh, and he comes alongside. And the great thing is, as I said, it is not just Mary who is weeping. It is Jesus who is weeping. It is the Son of God who is weeping. It is God who weeps. That's incredible. Hebrews says we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. 
But we have one who has been tempted and tested in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. You see, we have got a compassionate God. We've got a passionate God as well. To be passionate means to have feelings. And God feels things. Compassionate means he feels with. That's what it means, literally. He feels with us. He knows what we are going through. And Jesus there is weeping. Jesus isn't just weeping. The Bible says he is deeply moved. Now, I've always thought this, this is just to do with the depth of his sorrow. But actually, I, st- I thought, let's have a little look at that, that word and what it really means. It only occurs three times in the Bible, the word that's translated deeply moved. And all, well, in every situation, it's actually got to do with anger. Jesus is angry. Wow. What is he angry about? I believe he is angry when he looks at what sin has done to his creation. How it is ruining the lives of people. How it is destroying society. How Lazarus has died. It has brought death into the world. And all of his plans to enjoy fellowship, godly fellowship with his people, sin has wrought havoc with that. And he is angry with that. You know, sometimes people say, you know, you never hear about an angry God. But what they're looking for is they're looking for the old hellfire and damnation, you know, that God's about to condemn sinful people. And God will condemn sinful people at the end if they do not avail themselves of the salvation that's there through Jesus. But I'm not talking about God's attitude to sinful people. I'm talking about God's attitude to sin. What has completely devastated his creation. And I believe that in that moment, he is angry. It saddens him, but it also infuriates him. And, you know, from now on, he is going to Jerusalem. He is going to deal with it, even though it's going to cost him his life. Because he is going to put an end to it, uh, finally. Jesus asks about Lazarus. um, And uh, there's, there's a tomb that has been prepared. Uh, can I just say, in those days, they would uh, bury people quite quickly um, because of the climate, obviously. The bodies would decompose. What would have happened just before uh, this? Uh, first of all, the body is anointed, put in with, uh, with spices. It's wrapped up in grave clothes. Then there would be a cloth put over um, the head because just for a, a very short while, people would sometimes want to come and see the dead person you know, sometimes, um, I can't think of the word they use for it, but when people uh, uh, die, sometimes the coffin is left open and people can come or they can visit the home or, or everything. And, and the Jews would do that. And then everyone, everyone from the village would go to the tomb. Tombs in those days, they weren't the sort of six-foot um, gaps that we have now but tombs were made either in natural caves or sometimes hewn out of a rock but unlike Jesus's which had belonged to um, Joseph of Arimathea who was a rich man and that was a private tomb very often these tombs they were about two uh, two maybe three meters square and uh, they would very often have uh, three shelves either side and two at the back so eight people would be buried in a tomb and then a stone would be rolled in front uh, of it. Can I also say that 
th there would be a lot of weeping going on. When someone died, there would be 30 days of weeping. During the first seven days, the close relatives, they wouldn't wear shoes, they wouldn't do any work, um, they wouldn't do any study. But for the first three days in particular, there would be a lot of mourning, deep mourning. And by this, I mean quite frenzied wailing and things. I, I don't know if you've seen on the, the TV, sometimes you see pictures of people in the Middle East when they're at funerals and things, and they are a lot more expressive than we are in our culture. And really, you know, it's not being disrespectful at all. It is just they are, they are voicing, they're giving voice, giving sound to their frustration, to their sorrow. They are honoring people by this. And so Jesus seems to have come back at this time. And then they take him along um, to the tomb. And Jesus says, remove the stone. And maybe Mary is thinking Jesus wants to go in and have a look at Lazarus one last time, lift up that uh, uh, face cloth. And she said, Lord, four days now, he stinks. It's just interesting, by the way, as well, some Jews, they had uh, this idea that when someone died, their spirit would hover around for four days. And only after on the fourth day or for three days, and then on the fourth day, it would depart and uh, it's just interesting that he's been dead for, that he, he is dead. You know, all the Jews know by now that he is uh, dead. And Jesus said, didn't I tell you, if you believe, you'll see the glory of God. And so God is going to be glorified in this way. John, actually, again, it's one of John's favorite words about Jesus bringing glory to God. And sometimes when we think of glory, you know, I wonder what comes into our minds. Maybe we think you know, of, of radiance, uh, God, you know, something like the transfiguration. And obviously, you know, that, that is one way of showing God's glory. Again, I find it interesting looking at the life story of Moses. There's a time when Moses says, I want to see your glory. And God says, well, you hide in this rock and I will let you see my goodness. Isn't that interesting? And say, I'll let you see my glory. I'll let you see my goodness. And I quite like that idea that the goodness of God and the glory of God, you know, in the cross, we see the glory of God. Not in that sort of super way that, uh, you know, we might, might, might express, but we see the goodness of God. Uh, you know, it is so good what Jesus has done on the cross. Can I just say human thought never takes us there. You might have some fancy ideas of what God is like, but actually the Bible says this is where you meet with God in the person of an executed criminal hanging on a cross 2,000 years ago. And that's where we see the goodness of God. And so Jesus comes, and he comes to the tomb, and uh, he just looks straight into the mouth of death, and he confronts it. In fact, earlier in John, in John chapter 5, it says one day death is going to be dealt with. The Son of God, the Son of Man, you've both those titles are used. They're going to speak, and things are going to happen. Um, I think it's in Charles Wesley's uh, hymn, is it? I think it might be over a thousand tongues. It says, he speaks and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. Praise God, that's true spiritually. But praise God, it's also true physically that one day we shall receive new uh, eternal life in uh, a brand new dimension. And Jesus cries out and says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, come out. Some people say he had to name Lazarus. Because if he just said, come out, all the dead would rise. Because Jesus has that power that Lazarus is raised. And uh, 
this is important. As I said, it is a sign. It is a sign of who Jesus is, of his power, of his life-changing power. The fact that he is the resurrection and the life. It's important because it transforms Lazarus. I mean, you can't get a better testimony, really, can you? <laughs> you can't get a bigger transformation. He was dead, and now he is alive because of Jesus. It shows the glory of God. It causes other people to believe, but actually the other thing that happens is it does cause division. There are some people who believe, but there are others, the religious authorities. And uh, in verse 53, it says, from that day on, they plotted to take his life. I, I do find this quite astounding. They think, what can we do? Well, we'll kill him. But actually, he's just shown that he's got power over death. Uh, you know, just like that. But there's another little twist in the story as well, because usually pe people finish there. But there's a little episode about Caiaphas, the high priest. I was saying about a twist in the story. I mean, it's, it's what you might want to call dramatic irony. You know, something that's said, and it's quite important. Um, one of the things I, I quite like doing is with certain films and certain series, sometimes if you watch them carefully, someone will say something that's a bit of a giveaway. Um, in terms of films, the best example, and I'm not going to go into it in too much detail, if, if any of you have seen The Sixth Sense, brilliant film, The Sixth Sense, but there's one of the characters about halfway through says this line, and uh, when the um, director said he wanted it in. Everyone else said, you can't say that, it'll give everything away. And he said, no, no one will notice. And it's not until you've been told that you notice it, you look back. Um, on a more uh, um, homely way, I don't know if any of you watched it, uh, it's quite a few years ago, there was a uh, series called Broad Church. It had David Tennant in, one of the old Doctor Who's, and it was a detective thing. And uh, I just remember watching this, and there was a, one woman was talking to another woman, and uh, she was asking questions about her husband. She said, surely you know what your husband's doing. And I remember saying to Lynn, I said, that's it. That's the giveaway because it's her husband. She doesn't realize what her husband is doing. And uh, what you get is that when you read this story about Caiaphas, um, he goes on to say this in verse 50. He and all the religious and the political authorities, they're really worried about Jesus. Jesus is getting this big following. He's there at the time, which is just coming up to Passover, the time when they would have been reminded of um, the Passover, their freedom from slavery. And they're there right at the, the center, right in Jerusalem, and people are beginning to flock around Jesus. And uh, Caiaphas says, we've got to stop him. And the, the words he says is, you do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Now, what he was saying is, we don't want the Romans to come and wipe us out or attack us or anything like that. We're much better seeing one person die. And yet, when you follow the story through, you find out afterwards, it says this, John says, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. All right, so um, unwittingly, he's an unwitting prophet and what he says comes true. Jesus dies. And, but of course, it is not just for the Jewish nation. It is for all God's people right the way throughout the world. 
And so I just hope that there's some stuff in there that will help you, that will apply, you'll be able to apply to yourselves, that we'll, we'll think about our prayer lives, we'll think about the possibility of God breaking in in the here and now. We'll try and get our timetables in line with God's timetable. That we know that God is with us in our weeping, that Jesus is there in, in our weeping. And maybe, you know, maybe as well, sometimes we will have that same outrage and uh, against sin that just destroying so many people's lives. And that will stir us to action. But above all, and just as before in the worship, we'd focus so much on Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' life, Jesus' conquering power. We'll just spend some more time, oh, sorry, uh, John, we'll just spend some more time worshiping God and thanking him for what he has done in Jesus.